Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Karen L. Marrero to discuss her book, Detroit's Hidden Channels, The Power of French Indigenous Families in the 18th Century. Thanks for tuning in. The hidden channels of Detroit's French indigenous history run backward and forward through time, cutting through and becoming visible in the expanse of the imperial record, only to disappear into local story and song. These are seams in Detroit's history that reveal the contingent and messy nature of national borders and local identities. As Sophie White describes it, Detroit's Hidden Channels is a meticulous and sophisticated analysis of Detroit's founding era. It offers an important rejoinder to standard imperial histories by parting the curtains for us to see, with more clarity and precision than we have before, the place of indigenous and French women in the making of Detroit. I'm happy to welcome Karen L. Marrero to the show. Dr. Marrero is Associate Professor of Early American History at Wayne State University where she teaches courses on early North American and indigenous history. Karen, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to join us to talk about your book. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks very much for having me. You know, one of the things that interests me about university press publishing is how narrow some of the topics can be. So I really wanted to kind of dig into your interest in Detroit at the outset. How did you come to be curious about the origin of Detroit and its founding and things? Um, well, I... Uh grew up on the border. So I, I was actually born and raised in Windsor, so on the Canadian side of the border, but made frequent trips over to Detroit. I was intrigued with local history, and I hadn't ever learned any of that history. Uh, when I was in grade in high school, I you know, learned some of these sort of larger sort of histories of the nation, which I found quite boring. And on my mother's side, I'm French-Canadian, And that is a history that's sort of tied to the Windsor, Detroit area for over 300 years. And I hadn't heard anything about this history other than some of the stories that were passed down through her family that she shared with me. And also I had known a lot of uh, local uh, researchers, local historians who who were writing at that level, and even some local genealogists who were doing some great work. So I knew some stories about some of the people that were part of the history of the region. But again, I wanted to connect what I was hearing locally with larger stories that I had learned about in school. What is the sort of standard narrative of the history of Detroit, the kind of textbook version that you would get, you know, if you did get it at all in a high school class? So what you would get is Cadillac arrives Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac uh, arrives in 1701. Uh, he's received permission from the King of France to establish a fort at this n- narrowing of the Great Lake waterways. And he, he arrives and sort of plants a fort, builds a fort, builds a church, and then everything begins. And, you know, these narratives, traditional narratives, are usually overly simplistic, as most of us know. And it doesn't say anything about the vast number of indigenous nations who were resident in the Detroit region or moved through the Detroit region for centuries before Cadillac came. He would never have thought about establishing a French presence nor received 
permission from the King of France if he had if there were not indigenous people and not indigenous nations who were in the region because um, trade would be a big part of the reason to sort of invest money in putting a French presence there. One of the things that I found really enlightening about your book that I feel like is something that we sort of know if we give it any thought, but that you really show in great detail, is the degree to which that founding of Detroit, as you say, it happened in the midst of all of these indigenous nations, but really what was founded there wasn't just simply a French you know, colony, but was a really mixed and varied place that interacted with the French government, with the English government, with native tribes and those kinds of things. How did you end up settling on thinking about French indigenous folks for this book? Well, I was aware too, you know, some of the family, family stories or s- songs, I, you know, you quoted Sophie White, a colleague of mine at University of Notre Dame, who also does early French history. And, you know, she mentioned the songs. I was in, in looking for materials, you know, my methodology, my way of sort of coming at this project, I realized that I wouldn't have enough materials generated by the people I was looking at because they either didn't leave written records, most of them didn't, or they weren't literate. So I had to sort of cast my net more widely. And while I was looking to do that, I also had a chance, uh, my mother has passed away now, but she shared some of the stories and some of the songs she had heard as a child, which had sort of been passed down through multiple generations to her, which are songs that tell a history of the region where we see this complex social and cultural sort of place. They're songs that even quite literally have part French and part, in, uh, in, in this case, Anishinaabewan lyrics that come together. And so I was aware, again, through some of the work, like there's Richard White's The Middle Ground, which was published in 1991. And that was really a path-breaking book because it was the first time a traditional or academic historian had really started to look at Detroit as this complex region and as a pivotal region too, historically, in the Great Lakes in the 17th, 18th, and into the 19th centuries. So as I was sort of influenced by Richard White's book, when I was starting my dissertation, that sort of got me there, combining that with some of these stories and songs I had heard my mom share with me. And again, some of this work that people were doing locally, it helped to open my eyes to what seemed to be a a hidden type of history. It wasn't hidden. Once you start sort of looking and delving into it and understanding it, you start to see it all around you. For example, there's still a very uh, strong Indigenous presence in Detroit, in the greater Detroit area. I talk about Walpole Island on the Canadian side, and that is uh, Anishinaabe territory, and they still maintain that. That's their land, um, and they're part of the story going back very early. So it, all of the pieces were there. I just needed to bring them together. I wonder if we could examine a couple of those pieces in a little more detail. I think it would be useful for listeners especially to think a little bit about one of the central metaphors of your book, which is the channel, which is the sort of the the region of Detroit. What made it uh, a hub that made it so appealing to the French to set up a colony there in the first place? Yeah, that's 
and I can talk, you know, quite a bit about the multiple levels or metaphors I used in looking at the word channel or Chennai in local French is what I use in my book. But looking at sort of geographically, looking at this region, Detroit was and still is the narrowest point along this vast waterway that you can follow and that people did follow from the 17th, 18th and into the 19th centuries from the Atlantic Ocean, from St. Lawrence River, all the way down, you know, we're starting at around Quebec City and Montreal um, and moving gradually west and south. And that series of waterways, which of course includes the Great Lakes, narrows at Detroit. And that was a much narrower sort of physical area at the time, let's say, Cadillac arrived. Um, it's been dredged and widened for ships to come through, but you could easily see the other side. And then these people that I write about just kept moving west, north, up to Michilimackinac and into Lake Superior or south into places like Fort Wayne, Indiana into what's now Illinois, farther south into Illinois, and down to the Gulf of Mexico to New Orleans. So Detroit was this pivotal location on this water highway, and it truly was a water highway. That's the means that people use, and the people I talk about in the book use to move around. And it's a means of, of conducting trade too, right? That, that a lot of the commerce is, is coming through the waterway. What did the industry look like? What kinds of cultural production was, were folks engaged in there? Through the course of, especially the 18th century, the types of materials that moved through the region changed to some extent, but the predominant material was fur. You know, this was a big part of the fur trade, but there were, of course, other items that were part of that world that also passed through, you know, things like silver, different types, not just uh, beaver fur, but marten fur, fox fur, different types of fur, and different types of sort of uh, practical items that people could use. This was the, the particular sort of medium, this type of trade medium that required that French people or later British people had to work together with indigenous people. In other parts of what would become the U.S., parts of the English colonies, there wasn't this need to sort of cooperate on the part of Europeans with indigenous people with devastating effects immediately. So the French coming into the region that was Detroit, there were so few of them, and they were interested in establishing this particular trade. And it was absolutely essential that they engage with indigenous people on equal terms, at least. In many cases, it was indigenous people who were sort of laying out what this trade would look like and sort of telling them how they would cooperate with them or, you know, how they would help them. I wonder if you could tell us a little more about that kind of trading relationship or commercial relationship. We had a guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, Malcolm Smith, who did a book uh, on hats and the effect of hats on the animal population. And so he and I talked a lot about the fur trade and he was sharing some stories about indigenous folks who had been employed to wear beaver skins to, to knock some of the heavier fur off of them over a period of years even. What kinds of things were uh, indigenous folks doing in the fur trade, maybe specifically, or just in these commercial relationships? Uh, well, they were also, I mean, they were 
participating as merchants themselves. I mean, they have very complex trade networks as well. And I know that example you're talking about um, with the author you mentioned, because uh, beaver furs needed to, the, the best beaver furs needed to be worn so that some of those prickly outer hairs were worn off, right, before they could be made into felt hats. So the fur trade really just became a general context that brought Europeans and Indigenous people together. And it just allowed them to create alliances. I have a friend, Katie Kangany, a historian who wrote a book, An Economic History of Early Detroit. And uh, she talked a lot about the particular type of items that moved through the region. And a big one was moccasins. And Detroit was a, the center of a very thriving manufacturing uh, establishment that produced moccasins. So, and it wasn't just indigenous people wearing moccasins. It was the best thing for everybody to wear to sort of, to get around. So it was a very profitable industry that lasted all through the 18th century. Were those buckskin moccasins or what were the, what was the material? There was various materials that were used, if I remember correctly from her book. And it's interesting that the uh, Grosskrupp Museum at Wayne State University, which has a lot of archeological materials that have been discovered over the last number of decades, they have some examples of these moccasins that I know Katie was able to see. So buckskin was one, but there were other materials too, but buckskin was the predominant one from what I remember of her book. So all of this commerce and trade and, and folks interacting you know, in a commercial and economic way is going to lead to folks having relationships and so that you end up with the kind of inevitable uh, mixing of humans with other humans and you have you know, French indigenous folks um, are, who are the subject of your book. Could you tell us a little bit about what those kinds of relationships looked like and how they were perceived by others in the area in the 18th century? The relationship tended to be, you know, we, we have and I'm not the first historian, of course, to talk about this. There have been uh, people like, I want to mention Susan Sleeper-Smith, who's at Michigan State, has done a lot of great work. Richard White did. Susan has, has done this work. Looking at the fact that we have single French men, right, that are uh, the French population in Quebec that were coming over from France, it was mostly men. There were very few French women, particularly in the early part of the 18th century. And then, you know, these French men decided they wanted to engage in the fur trade and they were hired as engagés is the word in French, you know, hired men who would go out in these canoe brigades and leave Montreal and places around Montreal and go into the continental interior like Detroit and places farther west. And they were supposed to, you know, engage in trade and make money for the people who had hired them. So knowing that the fur trade requires a solid relationship with indigenous peoples, the most probably useful way to do that was to marry into indigenous nations. And that's, you know, we're talking about single men here too, as I, I go back to saying that a few minutes ago, many of the men who ended up succeeding in this trade all through the 18th century into the 19th century were able to do so because they married indigenous women and they became kin within these indigenous nations. That was a very important thing. So they got this insider status that other men might not have had. So that was the important foundation 
uh, on which these trade relationships were built. And, you know, the French governor general back in Montreal, they were wary uh, of these particular relationships. They were practical men and they understood um, what was necessary to push French interests further into the continent and to sort of get there before other European nations did, like the British. But they were wary of the amount of agency and liberty that these men had once they went that far away from places like Quebec City and Montreal. And this is sort of the basis of my book, too, is that once these men did venture into the interior and did establish these sort of complex cultural arrangements, marrying into nations, they sort of became empowered in a way that didn't always benefit the French back in Quebec. And there's a constant sort of worry on the part of imperial officials back in Quebec about how can we make, you know, the, the relationship these men have with Indigenous nations and Indigenous women, how can we make that work for us? And it didn't always work for them. So I give a number of examples in my book, looking at French correspondence from the governor general, and they're sending orders, for example, to the commandant at Detroit, and they're saying, you know, I talk a lot about the family of Pierre Roy, who married a Miami woman, uh, Marguerite Lubanque, and he's mentioned in these records, this Pierre Roy was, he could not read, he could not write, but he had married this Miami woman who was part of the influential part of the Miami nation. So the governor general is writing sort of saying, tell Pierre Roy to move back to Detroit. You know, Pierre Roy had gone to what is now Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is part of Miami homelands. So the governor general understood that in order to control or semi-control uh, what was going on with indigenous peoples, he needed to have these pivotal people back into the imperial pale. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Karen L. Marrero, author of Detroit's Hidden Channels, The Power of French Indigenous Families in the 18th Century. I find it really interesting how you show in the book the way in which those records express exactly the kind of anxiety that you're having. One of the details that you didn't mention yet is that his children are then recorded as um, being of French descent, despite having an indigenous uh, mother. Yes. So the records, you know, display this anxiety about, you know, who belongs to the French nation and, and how do we properly maintain uh, you know, French supremacy or white supremacy ultimately in the region. Oh, yeah. How did the how did indigenous folks uh, think about these relationships? Well, from, you know, we, we take sort of an indirect view of this because we don't have Indigenous voices, at least in these 18th century records. You know, on the part of Indigenous people, and we do hear, we can, you know, hear their voices in imperial records and understand that they were also, they were trying to maintain their homelands, they were trying to maintain their nations, and that they entered into these negotiations or alliances or even marriages, if we're looking at an int intimate perspective, with ideas about how this would benefit their nation politically and economically, right? So it wasn't a, you know, once I enter into an alliance with the French, then they're going to be taking charge, right? It never was that. How can this relationship from an Indigenous perspective, how can this benefit my nation? How can this give me power? 
you know, that's what it looked like from their perspective. In terms, if you don't mind me sort of going off and coming back to my point about sources. Yeah, no, I would really like to hear that, actually, because it is such an interesting challenge to think about, um, you know, when the only records that we have are produced by the imperial colonizers. How do we speak with, you know, respect and knowledge about the people who were, you know, on the other side of that? Well, yeah, and it is, it's, it remains a an essential, very important issue that historians uh, have to keep in mind, right? That's the state of the field, uh, Indigenous studies writ large, is that, you know, in, Indigenous people have their own mechanisms of telling their stories and their histories, right? So in writing my book, of course, I did rely a lot, as I mentioned, on these imperial records, and a lot of them are, well, they're at the National Archives of Canada in the Ottawa region. But luckily for me, uh, you know, in the years after I'd started the dissertation, a lot of these records were digitized. And so I was able to access them online. And there's some great summaries written by the, ar- the wonderful archivists there, where you could do searches on people's names or on different Indigenous nations. There is a ton of information there. I mean, you could write a thousand books based on the archives that are there. And they're very detailed about particular Indigenous individuals and particular Indigenous nations. So I really made use of these. I had, you know, I looked a lot at this, this man named Pierre I used some great research that was done by genealogists uh, local to uh, Detroit area who have, you know, worked for decades in French records and are used to sort of parsing through them to find these individuals. And then in terms of the uh, Indigenous voices, I was able to, like in the case of the Miamia, who are figure fairly prominently in my book, there are some great Miamia historians. I'm going to mention George Ironstrack, who's at Miami University in Ohio. And he has a phenomenal blog, which I cited many times in my book, that is a Miamia history, including where it intersects with French history. So I was able to cite his work quite a bit. And at, also at Miami, uh, Miami University, there's people like David Costa and Daryl Baldwin who have done a lot of work on the Miami language. And I did linguistic analysis in the book. And going back to your comment about the colonizers and specifically Jesuit priests who were trying to convert indigenous people, not always successfully, or it's very complicated a story, but they made dictionaries for use as uh, missionaries where they'd have the French, a French term and then the language of the indigenous nation they were working with, in this case, Miami, uh, Illinois language. Those dictionaries still exist. And I was able to actually go back and use those dictionaries. And I'm not the only historian who has. And the same goes for Anishinaabeen. There's a great, great Anishinaabeen dictionaries that are online. And figure out what the last names of some of the indigenous people I found in church records meant. So it's, it's exciting. You know, as we're on the subject of methodology, I think it's a good time to think a little bit more about the way in which you go about doing the history in your book. As we've talked about it so far, we're sort of thinking abstractly about the history of Detroit and in, uh, French indigenous relationships there. But the book is really a kind of family history. Could you tell us a little bit about what that term means as a methodology and, and why it seemed appropriate for 
um, as you say, pulling apart and revealing the distinct and messy collection of secrets inside the history of Detroit. I appreciate you citing that provocative uh, sentence from from my book. Because I consider myself a microhistorian, there are many terms for it, but sort of interested in looking at individual people and individual experiences and the local or smaller sort of geographic regions. And it's sort of my way of attempting to create space for people who have been forgotten in the traditional historical records. So in terms of family history, there has been so much good work done, as I've mentioned, people who have sort of spent all this time tracing the genealogical history of local French peoples. And there was a lot of intermarrying between indigenous and French peoples in the greater Detroit region, not just at Detroit. And so I felt that using a metaphor or using a, a network of kinship to understand how, how these people, who, they, who these people were and how they operated revealed a lot more than if I'd written a traditional sort of macro or bird's eye view history. So I was able to show in my book by fo- tracing people, following them, and understand how, understanding how they were related to each other, I was able to show how actually intimately related uh, people were at Detroit. So-and-so was somebody else's cousin and father-in-law. It was a pretty small kinship network, but it actually ranged geographically quite far. So I'm able to show in the book that brothers of the Roy family or some of the other French families, you might have one brother that's operating on St. Paul Street, which was right on the St. Lawrence, right on the waterway in Montreal, and he's handling business there. Then you've got another brother who's at Detroit, living on St. Anne Street, which is the prime street within the fort to conduct trade. Then you've got another brother at what is now Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is the Miami Nation homelands. So he's operating out of that fort, and yet a fourth brother down in New Orleans. And they're all engaged in this trade. And it flows, as I mentioned to you, along this waterway. You can't get those connections from histories that sort of just talk in general terms about indigenous European relations. Yeah. And I think one of, we've, we've sort of touched on this already in the discussion, but I think it's important to emphasize the degree to which another thing that you don't tend to get is the perspective of women. Whereas when you start thinking about these you know, familial networks and kinship arrangements, you start to see more clearly the centrality of women and the roles that they play in trade and in, in politics and everywhere else. When you start looking at how people are related to each other, how did these French men, you know, make inroads into indigenous communities, etc. Most of the second half of the book deals with particularly um, women's experiences. Could you talk a little bit about the work that you do about Pontiac's war? Oh, sure. That, that's yeah, one of my favorite parts of that book and one of the most interesting to research. And yeah, women are absolutely essential. I, I mean, we knew this, as I mentioned, uh, because of the work with scholars like Susan Sleeper Smith have done, how absolutely essential indigenous women were to allowing this business that we can sort of loosely call the fur trade to operate. But there's also been a lot of great work, which I, you know, augmented in, in looking at Detroit. Um, that shows that French women were equally powerful 
Uh, so French women, for example, who were part of families, usually it was fathers and brothers, and then they usually marry somebody who was also part of the fur trade business. These women were merchants themselves. They ran the business interests of their families. There's a term uh, in French for what these women could be, procuratrice. Really what that meant is they had sort of a, a legal agency to operate on behalf of their families. And there were a lot of these women who operated at Detroit. They owned properties. They owned a lot of trade goods. So they were really running things for their families. So the Pontiac story is, uh, I've read, being a historian of early North America, most of us know the story of Pontiac's War. And uh, a lot of people don't realize how central Detroit was to that story, although I'm thinking a lot of Detroiters do know that. But the traditional narratives of Pontiac's War they talk, they're all about men. They don't talk anything about women. Uh, for all we know, women had nothing to do with what happened, uh, how close Indigenous nations came to being able to say to the British who had recently arrived after they defeated the French in the Seven Years' War, um, listen, we're going to demand, this is Indigenous people saying, we're going to demand how this sort of, if you want to continue to conduct trade here, if you want to pick up from where the French left off, you have to do so on our terms. They had set those terms with the French. But at that moment in 1763, when all of the forts in the Great Lakes, British forts, are under siege by indigenous warriors, it's women that are central to the story about whether or not what Pontiac is trying to do is ultimately successful or not. And there's this sort of people thought an apocryphal story about a, a, a woman. Some said she said she was indigenous. Some people said she was French. And it was sort of a, a story that got passed along throughout the 19th century that this particular woman was the one who let the British know ahead of time that Pontiac and his warriors were going to attempt to take over the fort at Detroit. And the British, having known about this in advance, were able to arm themselves and get ready. They understood when this was supposed to be happening and to sort of uh, stop this. And Detroit, as a fort, did not fall. It was under siege for six months, but it did not fall ultimately to Indigenous forces. It's a very simplistic narrative, very 19th century, very romanticized. Famous historians like Francis Parkman pick it up. Francis Parkman comes to Detroit. He wants to write his book on Pontiac's War. He comes from Massachusetts. He's this elite Harvard-educated guy. And he comes to Detroit and interviews the mayor and talks to people. And he's doing some research on the ground for his book. And so he's interested in finding out if the story is true, whether this woman actually warned the British. And he does talk to local people uh, and hear some of these stories but what he ends up doing when he publishes his book, which becomes the book on Pontiac's war on this history that comes to define how we talk about this event well into the 20th and 21st century even, he sort of does a Disney, I'll say it, a Disney on this figure of this, of this woman and sort of turns her into this beautiful, sexy, you know, indigenous woman who was having an affair with the British commandant, right? And she wanted to save his life. So 
in the research I was able to do, and it's, it's very hard to pick up parts of the story, and there were few for me to pick up. I was able to, to trace the French woman who was part of the Beaubien family more because I had better sources, but I do know a little bit about the indigenous woman who was most likely Ojibwe and Anishinaabe, and we have different people writing about her. Lewis Cass writes about her later in her life. Uh, Henry Rose Schoolcraft writes about her in her old age. And from my research, you know, I'm able to say that what she was doing there was conducting trade. And whether or not she let the British know, we don't know. But Anishinaabe women, I mean, uh, Indigenous women in general, but Anishinaabe women could be chiefs and are still chiefs in their nation, and they could conduct trade in this particular role. And they had been doing it at Michelin Mackinac and Detroit. We see them in French records for most of the century. So it didn't surprise me coming at this event from the work and the research I'd done that there is an Indigenous and a French woman at the center of the story, because both French and Indigenous women were central to trade. So it just complicates this sort of romanticized story that's got this, you know, sexy underpinning. I can say, based on my research, it's not at all what happened. Could very well have been, as you said here, a, a sort of different kind of political calculation rather than an affair of the heart. Economic and political, yep. But I mean, as you point out, like that, the, the very idea that a woman would be involved in that sort of thing, it's taken us forever to come around to and, and you're sort of focus on kinship networks really does reveal that, you know, in, in greater detail. As you look at the course of the 18th century, things change rather dramatically uh, in terms of the political orientation of this whole nation from a colonial standpoint. Could you say a little bit about how the change from, you know, French Detroit to the coming of the American Revolution impacted French indigenous communities? Uh, sure. Um, as you said, the 18th century was a tumultuous time in terms of um, the Euro-imperial people that came through Detroit. Um, so it was French, talking just about the European side of this, it was French and then British in uh, 1760 and then uh, American at the end of the 18th century. French indigenous networks had been part and parcel of the sort of French colonial scheme, even if there, you know, the governor generals were dubious about whether they should work or whether there should even be any mixing of French and indigenous blood. That was a concern as well. But we have kinship networks that are working in tandem with the French government for the most part. But when we have the British come in, we already have these established French indigenous families and they dominate trade. They dominate the culture of the area. And the British are just, they're at a loss as to how to figure out how to operate and how to establish themselves politically and economically in this region that's dominated by these families. And they're not entirely successful. That's why we have Pontiac's Rebellion. And they continue to sort of stumble through this. Uh, there are more Brits that, more English-speaking people who sort of come into the region, but they find a way to cooperate with the families, the French Indigenous families. Um, and then we get to you know, the eve of the American Revolution, and that's where I end my book. In 1774, it was a very important year, um, not because of what was going on in Philadelphia, Continental Congress, uh, not for the purposes of the people I look at or for Detroit. Uh, it was a world apart 
from from Philadelphia, but because we have some of these families who the British are increasingly dependent on. In in my case, in my book, I'm talking about French Miami families, and they're continuing to sort of dominate the economic mechanisms of the fur trade. And the British are really they've got their hands full with what's going on with the colonists farther east, um, with indigenous nations across uh, the Great Lakes, like the Shawnee, who are tired of encroachment on their lands by Anglo settlers. And so the British are very reliant on some of these French indigenous families, and they bend over backwards to try and maintain these alliances. And to hear a little bit about that, And what happened in 1774? You have to read my book. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what this kind of history writing uh, is adding to the larger conversation and what the sort of next steps are for histories of Detroit and local histories like the one you've done here. In terms of the history of Detroit, there's still so much work that needs to be done, right? And there are some, the, the, the sort of circle of, of those of us who are doing or have been doing this work still is relatively small. Um, and then there are the people, like I said, who are working locally who have been working for decades. But uh, in terms of like professional historians, in terms of academic historians, there's just a handful of us. And we still have, the history of Detroit is still sort of, dominated by stories of, you know, the rise of the automobile, 20th century histories, um, which are very important. But in order to understand and have a sort of proper way to contextualize those histories, we have to understand what Detroit was hundreds of years beforehand, you know, why it was central economically and politically and culturally, and particularly and most importantly, why Indigenous people have been part of the story, have been agentic, and have mandated the means by which this economic and political sort of history developed, and how they still do, that they're still here, and they're still part of this particular narrative, and they're still determining how uh, this particular history continues to unfold for them and for their nations. Well, I I have to say that I have really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to spend some time with your book, and I have relished uh, listening to you chat about it today. So thank you so much again for taking the time. I've really enjoyed this. I have really enjoyed this too, Kurt. And I am, again, so honored and happy to have been asked to join you for this session. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Marrow's book, Detroit's Hidden Channels, The Power of French Indigenous Families in the 18th Century, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me, at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Medija Bose, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.